0: Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host each week. You may recognize me also as the voice and the mug of the guy that hosts the other podcast. Franklin Covey distributes now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast called On Leadership with Scott Miller, where each week for the last nearly five years, we've been interviewing thought leaders, business titans, CEOs, best-selling authors, retired generals, and Pulitzer Prize winning literary titans what we found is it wasn't always the Hollywood celebrity who was the most interesting or downloaded episode. It was often people like today's guests that have a remarkable past, education, and history, but are relatable. We actually can see ourselves in their journeys and learn a lot from their own career successes and sometimes failures. And today we have a great guest on. His name is Glenn Fogel. He is the CEO and president of Booking Holdings. Now, what's interesting about Glenn is Glenn is both the CEO of what I might call a holding company, but he's also the CEO operator of one of those companies. He is the CEO of Booking.com, and his company owns many sub-companies, if you will, Kayak, Priceline, and others. We'll talk about all things related to life post-pandemic and agility in business. Glenn, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you, Scott, for having me. So, Glenn, that was a little bit of a, a mouthful there. We've had uh, one other guest that had a similar role to you, and he was the CEO of Panera Brands, which holds uh, ownership over a variety of companies, Caribou Coffee and Noah's Bagels and others. And he also is the CEO of Panera, the restaurant we all attend to on an often daily basis. You have a very kind of similar dual role. Will you describe for our listeners and viewers what that looks like in terms of you being the CEO of several companies, but also the functional CEO of one of them?
1: Yeah, it it requires wearing two hats. So one hat, and the the first one I got was the CEO of the overall booking holdings, the overall parent company. And I had been at the original company, Priceline.com, And we built it up through acquisitions, of which I was one of the people helping make that happen, and and became CEO of Booking Holdings uh, January 1, 2017. And then two and a half years later, in the middle of 2019, I decided to make a change to the management of Booking.com, which was our largest subsidiary by far, Booking.com overwhelmingly the large part of the organization and took over the role of CEO of that company as well. So that is an operational role as opposed to the holding company's CEO.
0: I mean, Glenn, beyond the double workload you have, do you find that that's especially valuable to you to kind of understand exactly or at least close to what the operational pressures are day to day from all the CEOs? that are in your portfolio of companies? Are you a better leader as a result of kind of being in a similar boat, rowing with them on a day-to-day basis?
1: Well, I hope so. But what's really important is being able to do things that'll be synergistic among all the companies. Yeah. It was definitely harder being the holdings uh, company only CEO and not being the operating person of the largest company and then trying to make things happen among all the companies. It's just easier to actually have
0: both levers. Makes sense. Glenn, take a few minutes and walk us through what are the portfolio companies in Booking Holdings and how ideally do they work together for the benefit not just of your profits and your employees, but for the customers that experience all of them.
1: Yeah. So some of the names that people will know, I won't go through all of them, but Booking.com, I mentioned, is by far the largest. But for your American um, people who are listening, they may not know Booking.com nearly as much as so they know things like Priceline.com, which I mentioned, or Kayak or Open Table. Then if, if people listeners who are in Asia, they may know Agoda, which is based in Singapore and Thailand. Um and then there are a whole bunch of other ones underneath that. But that's that's the major
0: set of it. Glenn, what do you do as the CEO of this organization to kind of constantly prognosticate and understand different consumer trends? We'll talk about the pandemic in a few minutes here, but what are some of the things from a mindset you and your leaders do to make sure that you're not just meeting, but perhaps exceeding what consumer preferences both are and will be so that you're, in essence, you know, beating your competition?
1: Well, there's no doubt that you're always looking at the data, but of course the data is current and past and you're trying to guess the future. So you're looking at trends, but of course, one of the things that, trend doesn't tell you is when's the trend going to change. So you're looking all throughout all sorts of other indicators, you know, little smoke signals, what's happening out in the world that you think is going to happen. It's a little bit like, and you go back to the great um, hockey player, Wayne Gretzky, who talked about, you know, you don't skate to where the puck is, you try and skate to where the puck is going to be. It's the same thing in business. You're trying to get ahead. Where is the consumer mindset going to be and making sure you're developing for that future? The problem is if you're too far ahead, you'll miss it too. When I was a trader a long, long time ago, Morgan Stanley, you know, there's an old saying that people would say, well, I had the right trade. I was just too early. And the saying is, well, being too early is the same thing as just saying you're wrong. So that's the critical thing is try and hit it right at the right time.
0: Glenn, maybe you'll show some vulnerability here. Can you think of a trend perhaps you or one of your companies was a little bit too far ahead of, and as a result, uh, you weren't there to exploit it when it was opportune.
1: Well, I'll say we were too early and we're still not quite there yet. When we bought open OpenTable, my thought was, everybody who travels, and we didn't have to do any research on this, we knew everybody who travels does not eat at home. They eat somewhere besides home. So the thinking was, well, if we buy open table and our travelers are traveling, we can combine the benefits of the open table platform and provide greater service to the consumer and helping them figure out where they're going to eat, get them reservations, and help out the restaurateurs by getting them customers who are coming to their city that they wouldn't be able to reach otherwise. So that was the thought. We still have not been able to really capitalize on that thought. So we we're a little early on that.
0: Glenn, how would you describe uh, your leadership style or the culture that you tried to build amongst your company CEOs? Because I'm guessing you need them to wear two hats. They need to wear their functional hat of running the company they're responsible for, but you also need them to occasionally take off their functional hat and put on the holding company hat so that they're also building their business so that they're all integrating well together and I'm guessing they have fiercely competitive personalities and skill sets to run their businesses, what do you do to uniquely make sure that they have the ability to kind of wear two hats or take some hats off and think of the greater good of the company, but not at the expense of the performance of their own organization, and that they don't also confuse the customer base, that is, the customer base of your larger company.
1: Yeah, and that is an issue that always comes up in any organization. By the way, it doesn't have to be a holdings company with separate brands and separate companies. It can be just one company with departments that are fighting each other. And why is an investment bank? We'd see that the traders versus the investment bankers, resources and what you're trying to accomplish. So that is something you're always trying to deal with. One way you try and do it is obviously it's just telling them what your expectations are for people. And the more senior you are in the organization, the more I expect everybody to be thinking, not for their individual brand or company, By the end of the day, it's the owners of this company, they own only the shares of booking holdings. And they are the people that we are thinking about. That's one. The second thing is try and set up your incentives that match up with what you want to accomplish. So certainly over time, we really thought, gee, for the most senior people, the rewards should come from how the holdings company performs as opposed to just their individual um, unit. And that's something I think you really have to be very careful about because otherwise if you go the wrong way and you incentivize just the individual brands, you'll end up with a lot of infighting.
0: let's talk about your own leadership style for a moment and your own competency. Obviously, very well-educated, went to Wharton and Harvard. Uh, I believe you were an attorney in New York for years. And now of course you're running this large organization.
1: Uh, I've never been an attorney. Just just in case you start shooting attorneys, I want everybody to know (laughs) that I am low on the list. Um, I do have a law degree. I do have a law degree from Harvard. I did pass the bar,
0: but I've never practiced as an attorney. An important clarification. Thank you for setting that boundary around your character. Uh, My question still stands. how do you, as the CEO, make your decisions on the data, like the grain, Wayne Gretzky, like are we coming for a mid-recession or a massive recession? How do you make sure that you don't fall subject to the the, the puffery of certain you know, prognosticators and certain news channels, and how do you make sure you don't over-course correct? Is there any kind of wisdom you might share to say how you keep a sane mindset while also not being late at the turn because you know all of us right now are facing what is hopefully the truth of the media that looks like there's a course correction. We see several companies laying off mass amounts of people that may or may not be an indicator of what's coming on in the economy. Twitter's you know, implosion may or may not be representative of what's happening at Meta or at General Motors or at Marriott. H- how do you kind of keep sanity about yourself with making sure you're listening and processing data without becoming hysterical and also also resting on your laurels and maybe missing an important indicator.
1: Well, the first thing is the older I get, the more I realize how little people can really come up with a correct estimate of the future. Yeah. And that's not really important, is recognizing how, how difficult it is to really guess the future things. And we can just look over the last 10 years of how many things came about that we had no no thought that these things were going to happen or thought they were extremely low probability events, yet they did happen. That's the first thing. I think you see this when you look back, people predicting recessions, they say, well, the stock market is good at predicting the recession. Yet then when you look at the data. Actually, it's predicted the recession nine times out and only occurred three times. Or you look at economists' viewpoints of the future and you see how terrible it is. Look just recently the Fed. How many times did the Fed say, no, don't have to worry about inflation. Don't have to worry about inflation. Also, oops, yeah, it is a concern after all. So one of the things, I, I don't take too much faith into anybody's estimate ability to uh, come up with an estimate of the future. That's the first thing. The second thing is come up with a sense of scenarios, probabilities, and figure out, okay, how should we react right now? But be agile, be willing to change rapidly if the circumstances require you to do that. That's what I found to be the most helpful.
0: Glenn, you're not a, uh, a self-anointed economic forecaster, but for the millions watching this around the world, what are your thoughts around, we're taping this in, you know, just, just around Thanksgiving week in November of 2022, it'll air in the next couple of weeks. What do you think most company CEOs should know about what's on the maybe three, six, nine month horizon uh, for the economy? the world economy.
1: Yeah, and I I would say even thinking about economies overall is one factor, but uh, I am asked this question all the time. And we did our earnings call not too long ago, a couple weeks ago, and of course, everybody wants to know what's going to happen in the fourth quarter, what's going to happen in 2023. And I say, I don't know what's going to happen. My, My crystal ball is a little bit cloudy for the overall global economy but what i can say is that currently we're experiencing a great deal of travel and we expect it to continue for some time we're looking at our numbers for we do get the benefit of forward bookings people are booking business for the future they're whether they're going to travel in early 2023 and i can compare that how's that doing versus a pre-pandemic and i can see there is good growth there those are things i can see right now but the fact that i'm seeing that growth may not have anything to deal with somebody who is, say, a CEO of a car manufacturer who's seeing something maybe very differently, or somebody who's a home building company, and they're dealing with mortgage rates and things of that nature. So trying to estimate what the global economy, not nearly as valuable, is understanding what do you think is going to be happening in your
0: own industry. Well said. Let's talk about what's different now in your portfolio of companies than say three years ago. Can you share what kind of changes have you made culturally, institutionally, operationally, to make sure your companies are well-prepared for the next disruption, whatever that's going to be, whether it is you know, something geopolitical or it's another pandemic, certainly there'll be more coming our way. Can you share what you've changed that others might benefit from thinking, you know, honestly, I should probably address the same thing?
1: Well, well one of the things, of course, is being prepared is always a good thing. And we had had in our, uh, both the 10K and the 10Q in terms of risk, we would always had pandemic in there because way back, and I was at the company when SARS first came out in 2002, 2003, thereabouts, and we saw the impact of that in Asia. So we knew a pandemic could happen. And the thing is though, we didn't really do as much in terms of preparing for that. So when the pandemic came, Then we have large operations in Asia, we have operations in China. So in early January, when we saw this happening, we started to think, okay, what should we do? And we were not nearly as fast as we should have been in terms of shutting down the entire company in terms of working from the office and moving everybody to their home. 27,000 people. If I had said to people, well, what's the plan for that, uh, you know, a couple months earlier, they would have said, well, there's no way to do that. Yet there was a way because we were able to do it. So if we actually thought about it a little bit more, maybe we could have been a little bit more efficient in that. The thing I am really proud of is that when we first saw the potential for a problem with Russia invading Ukraine, and we saw that in January. Uh, before the war actually started and didn't start till you know, last week, February, uh, really, basically, we began to prepare just in case. We have operations in Kyiv. We have many operations in Russia. And we started thinking, oh, what are we going to do? And we had scenarios and we had uh, basically break the glass plans to do and execute if something were to happen. And that terrible event did happen. So we are ready to rock and we're able to evacuate our employees. We're gonna take all sorts of steps. I'm very proud of the team and how they executed that.
0: Glenn, pivot to the concept of mergers acquisitions. You have immense experience in this realm, having been at the forefront of acquiring companies. When you're in the midst of an acquisition and you kind of know it's gonna happen, right? Some things go south last minute, but nine times out of 10, when you're at the metaphorical two yard line, you know what's gonna happen. It's still a couple of weeks away, Everything's done. Due diligence is ready to roll. You're at home on a Saturday night having a glass of wine and you're walking around your house. What is it you're worried about? Are you worried about the cultural integration? Are you worried that the company's inflated their numbers and the truth's going to come out? Are you worried about the leadership isn't right, might have to replace it? you Are worried about retention of the downline or the customers or brand confusion? What's going around as you're in your bathrobe and you're having a glass of wine and you're thinking about how to make this acquisition work, not just for Wall Street, but for your customers, your employees, your bottom line, what's going through your mind? All
1: right, so, and we have been very successful with m and and built the company that way. And I was an m a banker for many years before I turned over to be a trader. So I have some experience in this. I'll tell you a couple of things that have really resonate in my mind about M&A in general. The first thing is, it is incredibly dangerous. And you really, you're, you're playing with live ammunition and the chance of making a mistake are huge. The percentage chance of successful MA in most of the academic studies that I've looked at say it generally is a loser for the acquirer, that you should have not done it. That's the first thing. And I keep that in the back of my mind all the time. The second thing is remembering that we're dealing with real people, people's lives, their hopes. They expect and many of the employees of a company expect one thing. When there's an m a event that they didn't see coming at all that will change their lives. And sadly, sometimes m and ends up in reductions in force. Part of the way that people are gonna hit their returns is by trying to cut costs. And one of the costs that sometimes acquirers will do is reduce the headcount because of duplicative uh, services right. and uh, consolidation, things of that nature. That is gonna be very disruptive. And you have to think, how am I gonna do this? Am I gonna do this the right way and treat people with respect? and do it so that people can come out of it okay, as best it can be. Or you're going to do something that may be much better for shareholders in the short term, but could be bad for the long term, because now your reputation that may not be very good, may make it more difficult to do uh, transactions down the road. So there are a whole bunch of things going through your mind all the time about that. But if you're close to closing the deal, and you haven't gone through everything already, you are way too late. You should have been worrying and thinking about these things before you even approached the other company to do the deal. And then once you started having the conversations really been going through these very deeply, all the different issues, how things could go wrong, how things can go right, why you have to really understand why do we want to do this? How do we really believe this is going to add value, not only to the shareholders and not only hopefully to the employees, but to the customers, why is it better for them? Why is this a good thing? I find that a lot of times looking at the business um, stories of acquisitions, a lot of times the reasons these things happened were not the right reasons. They could have been because of ego. They could have been because of um, personal incentives to hit all sorts of things that are not really honorable and good things. And that's something I really uh, I tell everybody before you do any deals, make sure you understand why you're doing it. What you get into it, make sure you understand what your success uh, measurements are.
0: Glenn, has there ever been an instance in your career with booking or otherwise where you were in the robe, metaphorically, and you had your glass of wine and you're walking around your house and you were especially self-aware and you started to realize, I'm doing this for the wrong reason. And I don't want this to be a casually like all the rest of them. You've backed out because you recognized it was about your ego or someone's ego or it was about some incentive. Have you ever gotten to the end and you've chosen to back away because you really realize, you know what, this actually isn't happening for the right reason?
1: Well, a couple things. First of all, I don't walk around in the back
0: <laughs> Second thing, I certainly don't
1: do it with a glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> I want to clarify that. Sorry that for image. the visual, my friend. <laughs> I, just want to, I just want to toss that image just right out the door. Um, but you can say, I'm sitting there with a beer Outside and on the rocking chair, I'm just thinking, uh, here's the thing, I don't recall ever having had a second thought of, oh my God, I'm doing this for the wrong reason. But I certainly have been involved in conversations and discussions, negotiations, and walked away from deals. And the reason I walked away is because I learned something that maybe say, okay, this isn't gonna actually work, or the chance of it working is much lower all of a sudden, or I learned something I don't like about management, or I couldn't figure out something that they were telling me. And I said, oh, I don't understand this. I don't want to do this. So there are lots of, uh, so many deals where you've had initial conversations. And then you said, you know, let's just table this for a while. and you don't, you never go back.
0: Uh, Glenn, let's talk about celebrity endorsements in marketing. Now this may or may not be your expertise, but certainly you have experience. I look at Priceline for a minute, right? As a consumer who lives in Salt Lake City, we travel a lot, we vacation, we use your services. Our family does. Uh, all Thank you. Your, all of your services. My, the only thing that's the only thing more important than my wife's open table points are her Nordstrom points. So she's a big open table fan. Uh, think about Priceline, right? For a long time, one of your spokespersons, your spokesperson was William Shatner, an amazing career. And as a consumer, you began to see Priceline start to put um, Kaylee Cuoco. I may be mispronouncing no. her name. The the no. very um, competent actress from Big Bang Theory and other movies as well. And you see her inserted in. How do you make decisions on hooking up with a brand ambassador and a celebrity, recognizing that, you know, your connection to them could fall apart? I mean, look what's happened to Kanye and Adidas and others like that. I'm guessing it's, your, it's kind of your worst nightmare as a CEO to make sure that, A, you're picking the right person, that they understand the gravitas of connecting to your brand and the trust you're placing in them. Talk about what the decisions are like to move off one and on to another as your demographic changes. What would you say about that?
1: Well, a couple of things on that. First of all, wouldn't say worst nightmare ever. I There are a lot of nightmares in the world.
0: Choosing the wrong brand
1: ambassador, wrong spokesperson, that's a business decision. Maybe it hurts your business a little bit. But we always want to try and maintain everything within context. And a simple business mis- decision that is a mistake, it can be costly. But that... There's so many worse things that happen in your business than losing a little money. And and I I, I tell you, I I know this, I I, I mentioned, you know, our thing getting people out of our uh, Kiev office and we had, uh, when people were evacuated but then some went back because things were safer in Kiev and we lost uh, an employee's husband to a missile. That's a really bad event. So I just want to keep everything in context. Now, obviously, in terms of marketing, in terms of coming with uh, uh, who we're going to use for different types of marketing programs, that's the job of the CMO of that brand to choose that, then the CEO of that brand to help make sure it's being done right. Now, uh, you mentioned the ones from Priceline. So I have a CEO of uh, Priceline, Brett Keller, excellent guy. He's fantastic. And before before he was became the CEO, he was the CMO. So he helps make those decisions up. And really, one of the things that's really important is a CEO can't know everything. In fact, CEO knows very little actually, all the things that need to be known to run a giant company. And you really have to make the decision that you're going to rely on the people who have more knowledge than you do and are gonna make decisions. Now they're accountable for it, they're responsible for it. And that's right, that's why you hire them, that's why you pay them what you pay them. And that's what I do, I rely on them to make these decisions. And I, you know, my knowledge is somewhat limited in terms of brand ambassadors, but I do have a, a, a confidence in the people that I brought in and we'll look at the numbers and it's not working, we'll figure out why.
0: Glenn, I appreciate you course correcting, right? Because I'm sure the Adidas CEO his worst nightmare that week was that problem. But you brought great sort of gravity and perspective to kind of keeping things relative. Uh, Any advice you would give to our listeners as parents, as entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, divisional directors, CEOs, on what you do to kind of not fall victim to the most charismatic voice or the the most flamboyant um, naysayer? How do you keep your wits about you in the midst of a lot of competing voices and bits of information to make sure that you're, you know, sitting in the rocking chair, having a beer, making good decisions around what's to come.
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely an issue because you're always gonna hear conflicting voices. In fact, you wanna hear conflicting voices. If there's a decision to be made, everybody's agreeing that this is the thing to do. I get a little nervous right away. Does nobody nobody have a different opinion of this? And I definitely that, that you know, yes person type thing. You always agree, that's, that's a difficult thing. The point you make out though, that somebody who does a better job of presenting something The danger is you're going to agree with that because they did a better presentation versus actually being a better decision. So you have to always be wary of that. One of the things I do like to do is asking people to take the role of, okay, why is that a bad decision? Come up with all the reasons that's not a good decision. Make sure let's really test it out. I definitely want to make sure that everybody understands that it's okay to not have the same opinion as everyone else. And this group
0: mentality is brought not
1: only companies but countries into really bad
0: decisions and the flip side of that glenn right is when you say that some people hear well I, maybe i should be the um, antagonist or i should be the devil's advocate and i've met and work with people who disagree with everything i have one colleague that no matter what i say the person is going to disagree with and that might be their personality there is a balance is there not of not falling into groupthink, but recognizing is this the right time for me to speak up is there anything you do as a CEO and president to make sure you build a culture where it is safe to dissent? Yeah,
1: and you have to do that. Otherwise you won't get that dissent and then you'll be back to that group think problem. So what's really important is making sure people understand that it is a safe place to express opinions that are perhaps not what is the uh, consensus and make sure of that that. You, you certainly don't want somebody who's always going the opposite just for the sake of going the opposite. That's not what you're looking for. But I definitely, definitely encourage people to have different ways to look at things and have out of the box type of thinking, which really is something that can be very, very helpful. It's it's definitely something that is trust. It all comes down to trust. Do people believe they can feel safe saying something that may not be popular and they will not? There are career isn't hurt, The way people think of them isn't hurt, and that
0: comes back to a
1: trust issue. And that's something really important to develop.
0: Beautifully said. Glenn Fogel, most decidedly not an attorney, but the CEO and <laughs> president of Booking Holdings. Thank you for joining us today. Have a great Thanksgiving weekend for your family. I appreciate you pouring into our listeners and viewers. I especially enjoyed the conversation around the merger pr- aspect and how to make sure those things are done for the right reasons, because we all know egos get involved and a lot of decisions we make. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Scott, for having me. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-suite.